This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Stella E, which is this big tall how how many feet tall is that it must be about 35 yeah, 40 feet tall about, yeah 25 or 30 30 feet tall so, so it's it looks a bit like i suppose a totem pole or something like that with lots of carvings mm-hmm. and on the front you've got a um a figure yep. and then on the sides you've got these square glyphs which are the writing right seth i went to see stella e which is a huge stone carving made by the maya civilization in what's now guatemala apparently it's the largest freestanding carved monument from the ancient americas and its surface is covered with the symbols that the maya used for writing if i go closer to it now can i go around the side because it's hard to see oh here we are yes oh, hang, hang on tom i don't think you've been to guatemala no, you're right. I didn't actually go to Guatemala. I went to see it in an office in London while wearing a virtual reality headset. Well, it's very, it's very convincing. I'm, you know, when you turn your head um, and you look around, uh, everything tracks perfectly. So it's an extremely convincing illusion. And then, this- so you're looking at a scan of this stone monument, and you're able to like walk around it and stuff. Yes, all that kind of thing. But it wasn't actually a scan directly made from the stone monument. The scan was made from a bunch of plaster casts of the monument that were made in the 1880s. So it sounds like this is a copy of a copy. That's exactly right. So I was looking at a virtual model made digitally of a virtual model made using plaster casts. It's sort of VR inside. It's old old Victorian VR inside modern VR. Then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it turns out that the Victorians were quite keen on their form of VR, rather as some people are quite keen on the modern form. And just as I could see this distant artefact while remaining in London, the Victorians were able to do the same thing. But Victorian VR had a bit of a bumpy ride. So it's not entirely dissimilar, again, to the story of modern VR, which has also been through ups and downs of its own. Well, maybe the story of the rise and fall of Victorian VR might be able to teach us something about how best to use the technology now. Right. VR may have evolved, but a lot of the questions it raises about the relationship between real and virtual objects are still the same more than 150 years later. From The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. And from Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. Welcome to The Secret History of the Future. It's February 1880 and Alfred Maudsley, a British diplomat, resigns from the colonial service to pursue his real passion, which is for archaeology. And his first stop is Guatemala, where he becomes one of the first modern archaeologists to investigate the ruins of the Maya civilization. And at that point, it's all hidden in the jungle. It's all buried. So he goes there to record the temples and the monuments and the hieroglyphs. And he's going to do it all using the latest, coolest Victorian technology. And that's why a member of his expedition is an expert in plaster casting. Now, when you say plaster casting, I think of like paper mache. Is it is it basically like paper mache? 
It's a little bit like that, actually, because they would sometimes use paper and press wet paper onto the stone monuments and use that as the, the negative mould from which they'd make the positive. But they would also sometimes just put a coating of, of something else on and then apply essentially plaster from lots of different directions in pieces. Um, and then they'd pull all those pieces off when they'd set and then they would use those as negatives to make a positive copy of the original monument. So it was a bit of a laborious process, which is why you needed to have an expert. They also had to take a couple of tons of plaster of Paris with them in order to do all of this because they were making casts of some really quite large monuments. Um, but this was the latest thing, and it meant that they could make multiple copies of these various monuments and carvings, and they could send them to different museums around Europe. This new technology of plaster casting had really taken off in the 1850s. Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband, was very keen on it. And one of the biggest proponents of this craze was Henry Cole, the original director of a museum in London now known as the Victoria and Albert or V&A Museum. Henry Cole was a great believer in the power of technology to open up the past. This is Tristram Hunt, the current director of the V&A and Henry Cole's modern-day successor. He was an early adopter of photography, of plaster casts, of electrotypes. But what he also wanted to do was to get his hands on as many great works of art as possible in order to copy them for working people to be able to see them for themselves. And so in 1867, he concocts a convention which is about the sharing of great works of art for the means of reproduction, sharing copies between institutions and he wanted as many other museums to sign up as possible so that you had this great flourishing of copies from the 1860s onwards. The idea was that if you made plaster casts of the greatest sculptures in your particular country and you exchanged them with other countries in Europe, then instead of going on the grand tour, which is what people used to do in those days to go and see the, the art treasures of Europe, you'd just be able to do the grand tour in the capital city of your own country. You'd just go to a museum and there would be all of the great works of Europe ready for you. I'm standing in front of Michelangelo's David, a giant statue that's towering over me, but I'm not in Florence. I'm in the Victorian Albert Museum, and I'm standing in front of a life-size copy, which is the centrepiece of one of the cast galleries here. People thought it was the real thing. People still think it's the real thing. People are very surprised we have Michelangelo's David here and not in Florence. Another Michelangelo, a duke, one of the Medicis, and here he is dressed as a classical Roman, and this plaster cast has been painted so that it looks like marble. And why did it happen then? What was the motivation, the trigger for it? The trigger was the advance of technology, the plaster cast technology, the electrotype, the photography. Also, a growing belief that museums as cultural institutions should open themselves up to the public. So those, those twin elements of technology and democracy. So what was the reaction to the cast galleries like when they first opened back in the 1870s? Well, they were a big hit. They were very popular. People flocked to see them. And there was this great sense of excitement around the possibilities of this new technology. It could broaden access to cultural heritage. It would let researchers scrutinize objects on the other side of the world. So in various different ways, it was opening up new worlds for people. And this is the context in which Maudsley is making his plaster casts of Maya artifacts and sending them to various museums around Europe. It's very similar to the more recent burst of enthusiasm we've seen around modern virtual reality technology. 
Just like museums back then tried to democratize access to cultural works, today there are people who are trying to do the same thing by making it easier to access things in modern virtual reality. I look at it, it almost becomes sort of binary. You either offer this child who would never have the opportunity to go a way to go, or you say to them, sorry, you'll never see this. Elizabeth Reed runs Boulevard Arts. It's a company that tries to bring great works of art to everybody using the very latest versions of VR. These technologies, virtual, augmented, mixed, what they allow for is to not only preserve them, but to potentially recontextualize them. You can stick your nose into a Manet painting and see the flatness of the oils. You can get really close to Gauguin and see the weave of the canvas underneath, which is vastly different than what a Monet canvas looks like. With VR, you can manipulate them in a way that you you can't with the original item. You can rotate them to look at them from different angles. I mean, the museum's not going to let you hold the priceless original sculpture in your hand and, and move it around with your fingers, but you can do that in VR. So now you're not just looking at an object and saying, oh, here's a study of something or the original lives at the Louvre or something like that. Rather, you're saying, here it is, and you can engage with it, learn about it. And now the research has shown over the past five years is that indeed when people have that opportunity, they then take it in in a much more sustained way. And then they make connections with that object and something else they may see in contemporary life. With VR, the treasures of the world come to you. And maybe they mean something different to you when they enter your life on your turf. This is Henry Cole's idea of democratizing access, connecting everybody to great art. I was speaking at, um, at a conference, and this young man came up to me, and he said, I have to show you something. And he showed me a photo of his mother, father, and grandparents in India with a Samsung Gear VR on, looking at our app. They had never seen this painting before. It happened to be a, a Manet picture. And you know, here I am saying it's all about, you know, potentially young kids and what they can think and how they can make connections. And here is this family just being blown away and saying, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, knowing that they'd never get there. It's not the actual one, but you know what? Maybe you won't have the opportunity to see the actual one, so you're going to see this, and it's pretty close. All this sounds great, but could looking at virtual objects in this way just be a passing fad? Because that's what happened with Victorian VR. What made people change their minds about the value of plaster casts? Because evidently there was a a change of heart. I think they didn't like the idea of the, the copy. In the early 20th century, people began to question the Victorian enthusiasm for virtual museums. Museum directors worried that original works were being outnumbered by mushrooming plaster cast collections that were thematically incoherent and simply took up too much space. Opponents of casts considered them misleading, being dull and mechanical in comparison with the originals. Were they valuable educational tools, or was disposing of casts, as one critic suggested, a worthwhile endeavour equivalent to dethroning false gods from their altars? Suddenly, there, there was a notion of the importance of the original, and somehow these were devaluing the currency. A slight embarrassment about them as one of those, you know, weird mid-Victorian elements to culture, which, you know, they fell out of favour. So what remains of Maudsley's plaster casts here at the v Is anything on display? No. Um, Maudsley's plaster casts were dispersed, and they were taken by the British Museum. 
clearly the British Museum's expertise in this was richer and stronger. And so when the plaster cast fell out of favour, thankfully the BM took them up. Maudsley's plaster cast spent most of the past century in a British Museum's storage facility, unloved and forgotten. Well, almost forgotten. Hi, I'm Chance Kokenauer. I'm Program Manager at Gugwarts and Culture, and I focus on cultural heritage preservation. The forgotten plaster casts of Alfred Maudsley languishing in the British Museum have recently been dusted off. A team at Google used cameras and 3D scanners to digitise Maudsley's casts of Maya artefacts and create models of them in modern-day VR. I saw his models of Stella E in VR when I visited Google's office in London, but they've also been put online to allow both researchers and members of the public to access them. It's a project Maudsley would surely have approved of. I believe that it's really just the next step. Um, the ability for someone to create plaster casts in the jungles of Central America in the 19th century. Flash forward to today, we are in effect creating virtual plaster casts. This isn't the only way that modern VR technology is more inclusive than the Victorian kind. Modern VR is also more accessible because the technology needed to scan objects and view the results is getting cheaper. The access to cameras, drones, 3D scanners, they're getting much cheaper. And I believe that there will be a new movement of, of people that are actually going around and capturing these sites themselves because the technology is readily available for them to do so. But as the technology becomes more widely available, it's sparking a debate about what should be captured and who should capture it. Shouldn't we be scanning everything now? Because some future archaeologist might have questions we haven't even thought about. I think you're, you're touching on a point that's very important, that if someone is passionate about a particular form of architecture from the 20th century, hopefully they'll be preserved for our you know, future archaeologists in the 23rd century to learn about 20th century architecture. Of course, the digital record will never replace the original uh, object, you know, being able to touch it or the smell that it that it carries or even the environment that it's located in. And also, I would argue that it's not only about the three-dimensional objects that we want to capture. Those were built by people. And people are connected to those objects because of feelings, because of the sight, the, the, the sounds, the smell of being in those locations. But I think that that is a, a particular challenge in preserving the stories, the intangible heritage part of our history, and not just that object, because that object that you see in VR is much more than that object. It's connected to all the people who built it and have ever seen it. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. These days, there's more recognition that it's important to preserve the stories and cultural context around items. But that wasn't true in the past. And in the case of Victorian VR, cultural biases and prejudices determined which of those virtual models were valued and which got destroyed. Here's Tristram Hunt again. So we had some great plaster-cast copies of South Asian temples, which were then all smashed up because they were regarded as 
you know, not great works of art. And similarly, we, we disperse some of our collections to other institutions. This does feel like a, um, it feels like actually going back in time to the Victorian era, just because the nature of what they have decided is important feels like a very sort of Victorian era edit of what we should care about in world culture. And it's this sort of thing. And they could have had stuff from other parts of the world, but they didn't. Or if they did, they got rid of it. There's a lot of subjectivity and bias at play in this stuff. The assumptions we're making right now, without even being aware of them, might seem misguided in the future. Just like the assumptions they made back in the past can seem misguided to us now. Clearly, there's an element of Eurocentrism and a belief in a hierarchy of civilizations when we wanted to keep the enormous European ones and not keep the enormous non-European ones. And that's why, 150 years after Henry Cole's original plan to gather plaster casts of artistic treasures together in one place, the Victoria and Albert Museum has launched a digital reboot of the idea that takes a more inclusive approach. So last year was the 150th anniversary of Henry Cole's convention. And we thought it might be a good moment to reflect on that history and think about it today for two reasons. And the same reasons that inspired Cole. One was the transformation of technology. Digital scanning, drone technology, 3D printing. And secondly, a growing impulse to democratise collections, which at one end is around decolonising the museum and thinking about our, our place within a broader power structure. And on the other hand is around open access to parts of the world, which are physically never going to come to South Kensington, but we think we have a responsibility to open up our collections too. So we thought it would be a good idea to, to sketch out some ethical or moral guidelines that those involved in copying and reproduction should think about adhering to. And how are the guidelines that you're following or that you're drawing up different from what Henry Cole would have done? Well, Henry Cole stitched up the convention with 15 other princes at a convention in Paris. And we've we've adopted, hopefully, a much more participatory and global conversation from Beijing to St. Petersburg to Abu Dhabi to, to Washington. Because where is copying and reproduction taking place? Crucially, in areas under great pressure and strain from global climate change or mass tourism or political uh, conflict... And those are right around the world. So it only seems right that we have a a global response to that. But new questions have emerged in the digital age. In particular, what rules should there be around the creation and use of digital models? You know, there are power concerns around the digital divide and who has access to this. There are issues around those who should be involved in it. Is it almost an act of colonialism to go and scan you know, the ancient Aztec heritage if the local community are themselves not doing it? What are your responsibilities to areas of religious and cultural heritage? You know, all, all of this is, is thrown up. So we introduce some ideas around stewardship and responsibility there. And What is great is we've had lots of museums around the world sign up to this, and it's about finding a balance. So there's there's fear, but there's also incredible opportunity and responsibility. At its best, this digital technology allows for a much richer engagement with collections. 
And Maudsley's original casts from the 1880s highlight this potential for VR, both ancient and modern, to preserve cultural heritage. Since Maudsley's time, the Maya monuments have been greatly eroded by pollution and acid rain. Maudsley's virtual models are now the most accurate record of the monuments, preserving details that have been lost in real life. Amazingly, he foresaw that something like this might happen. In 1899, he wrote that his casts, preserved in the museums of Europe and America, are likely to survive the originals. The same is true of other items that have been damaged over the years, but were preserved as Victorian plaster casts. It's a reminder that virtual objects can transport the experience of the originals to a wider audience across time as well as across space. For me, it started when I was a little kid. Um, my mom died, and I felt incredibly alone and isolated. I viewed other people as being like distant stars. I wondered what was going on in all those heads that I couldn't reach. I was too scared and shy and terrified, really, to, to talk to them. This is Jaron Lanier, one of the pioneers of virtual reality in the 1980s. And I became fascinated by art as a channel between people, and especially surreal art. And I thought, it's astonishing that people can make these things that show what's going on in their heads, and it's a channel to them that's different than talking. And what if we could have some sort of shared dreaming where we're making up the world together as a way to connect instead of trying to form these words, which seem so graceless and awkward and uh, so predetermined to mean things that other people made up. After reading about the concept of VR headsets in the 1970s, he was seized by an idea. My thought was, what if you could network these things together? And and uh, I did that with the first VR startup. And indeed, the term virtual reality originally meant the social version of a virtual world. That was the whole point of the term originally. And that was a term you coined? Yeah, yeah. By the original definition of virtual reality, if you just buy a single user headset, it isn't virtual reality. So like just a single Oculus Go or something would not be virtuality, but the term kind of stuck and has come to take on that meaning. As well as allowing for new forms of social interaction, Jaron Lanier believes that VR also has the potential to allow people to experience things from entirely new perspectives. We're focusing so much on the visual display and not enough on the interaction. The most magical and deeply VRish part of VR is when you become a weird avatar, when the way you interact with the world and with other people is altered, when you turn into a squid or when you turn into a mountain range or when you turn into a DNA molecule and you're turning and interacting with other DNA molecules. It's becoming the stuff, not going through an environment, but becoming the thing of interest. That is the magic of VR. In Jaron Lanier's view, we've barely begun to explore the potential of this new medium. But there are some artists now who are starting to do exciting things with VR's ability to capture experiences, not just objects, letting us revisit particular times and places, exposing us to other people's realities, and challenging the way that we think about a range of contemporary issues. I built a virtual Guantanamo Bay prison back in 2008. And it was a way to try to get people virtually to the prison that was otherwise off-limits to most citizens and press. And it was pretty effective. This is Nani De La Pena, a VR artist and journalist who's pushing the boundaries of VR storytelling. So we experience the world with our whole bodies, not just with our mind, right? Um, even though 
you know, we think about the movie theater. If you see something scary, you'll jump because your whole body is along for the ride. And I think it's that full embodiment that um, is really unique to this medium. And um, once I understood its potential, I just felt like this was a medium that I was going to spend my time creating within for the rest of my life. When I was in Nani's studio, I watched a VR piece she made called Hunger in Los Angeles. It was made from real recorded audio of an incident that happened in L.A., mixed with virtual images that Nani's team created. I put on a VR headset, and I found myself standing in line on an L.A. sidewalk where hungry people were waiting to receive donated food. And suddenly, the man in front of me collapsed. Okay, he's having a seizure. And people started yelling and screaming. When I was standing over the guy having the seizure, I felt like I needed to help in the moment. I needed to physically do something. And that was a very different feeling for me. Is that one of the things that sets VR apart? I think that was what that sensation, that newness of that sensation is, I think, what, why that piece was so celebrated and why it affected so many people. That it kind of made people cross the line from feeling like a passive observer to somebody who should be active. and. Um, I was astonished to see how many people reacted that way. It was just extraordinary. The whole experience of watching people react down on their knees, trying to like pick up his head. And then there was a few people who would back away. The graphics for Hunger in Los Angeles were pretty rudimentary, very blocky and unrealistic. But the experience of feeling that I was in the space, standing behind someone who was having an emergency was still really fundamentally different than just watching TV or a movie. It was visceral. I had a physical, reflexive reaction to what I was seeing. And that made me realize this is a distinct medium. It's not like what's come before. And that it's possible to preserve a new kind of artifact, an experience, that historians in the future will be able to look back on. And it will help them understand the 21st century world in a way that goes beyond just a two-dimensional documentary. Do you also think about what you're doing in a preservational way in terms of like this this experience or this context, this place might not always be around and I am preserving this experience or this place? Do you ever think about it in that way? I think it's crucial. I think it's, it's absurd not to be doing that right now. The tool right now is a DSLR. We're not talking some hugely expensive set of equipment to make this happen anymore. We're talking about a relatively inexpensive capture process. And um, I really wish we could be the leaders in helping do that. I think it's so important. I think it's a no-brainer that this is the direction we're going to go. Our, our world is not our inner, you know, our world is not flat. Why are we still experiencing our media that way? I mean, it's just not going to stay like that. And we should be embracing that future rather than um, tiptoeing around it. But frankly, at this point, people don't even realize how inexpensive it is to make it. Seth, we've both seen another of Nonny's VR pieces, which is about solitary confinement, and it's the scan of a solitary confinement cell, which you can kind of go inside. I found it very powerful, particularly the way you could move around or not move around inside the space. Yes, I found that very uh, emotionally affecting. And I felt claustrophobia of the walls being there. You, you know, you can walk around, but you very quickly hit a wall. It made me think about, you know, they, they tell the stories about when the Lumieres made their films of trains coming into stations and they projected on a screen and the people in the theater would duck because they thought the train was going to hit them. I, you know, we obviously got over that feeling with cinema. I, I think we still have that feeling with VR and it's a very powerful feeling. And I think one thing it does is it engenders a lot of empathy. I really felt 
for this guy who was confined in the solitary cell. Yes, I only spent a few minutes uh, in that virtual space, but I remember it as if it was a real space. I kind of remember it as a real experience and going to a, a real physical room, even though I never did. I also think it's a very good example of the way that virtual reality can update the idea of what a virtual museum could be because it's capturing an experience rather than just a thing. An experience isn't something you can just put on a shelf in a museum. So it really is expanding that idea. And you can think about it in the far future. If historians are looking back at solitary confinement as this barbaric practice that, you know, we gave up long ago and, and is a vestige of the past, I think this kind of experience would preserve the feeling of it and remind people what it was really like and what it did to people. But I will say a lot of VR technology now still doesn't seem ready for prime time. And you try to get it to work and it's like, you know, it's like dial-up internet in the 1990s, right? It's it's a little bit fiddly to deal with and there isn't a lot of compelling stuff to see even if you do get it to work. Yeah, exactly. It's still very much for enthusiasts, I think. And part of that, I suspect, is because the most impressive VR experiences are the ones where you can move around inside the space and that means you need one of these high-end VR rigs uh, and they just cost a lot more money. And the kind of consumer headsets that some people have tried, even the cardboard ones, just don't give you that experience. So I suspect that VR is not really going to make much progress until those kinds of um, experiences are available at a much lower price. And then eventually you can imagine that this is going to be, you know, like photography or sound recording or video. It's going to become a general purpose medium that you can use for all kinds of things and for recording all sorts of experiences. Uh, and it will be used for education and entertainment and gaming and inevitably pornography. Sure, sure. And, and I think it really does have unique possibilities for cultural education and preservation. Right. That was something that the Victorians like Maudsley recognized when they used a simpler form of the technology. Yes, even Jared Lanier, who hasn't been terribly impressed by the direction that VR's gone in since he first got interested in the idea, has at least kind of things to say about some of the examples of VR that have been used for preservation. It's very moving. It's very moving to me. I was just inside a fresh scan of an Egyptian tomb and it was a utterly stunning experience. And indeed, Egyptologists went into the same scan and discovered things that they hadn't detected in, in reality, because of course you can see it at different scales and from different angles. So this is one little gift we can give to our descendants of trying to preserve a little bit of what is being destroyed. And I, I've been moved to tears by some of the archaeological data that I've been able to experience in a VR context. It's, it's, uh, it, it's one of the more powerful things we can do at this moment. I'm Tom Standage. And I'm Seth Stevenson. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. Editorial assistance was provided by Gabriel Roth. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. The executive producers are Steve Lichtai for Slate Podcasts and Anne McElvoy for The Economist. Fire. I like my little pterodactyl hands. I also enjoy this 
fusion jazz accompaniment to my pterodactyl experience.